Um, thank you guys for being here on this beautiful Friday outside. There's uh, optimism that spring, I think, is around the corner, at least here in Baltimore, so that feels pretty good. Days are getting longer, and the weather's getting warmer. Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker. So Dr. Deep Ashana is here to talk to us today. Um, she did her undergraduate medical and business degree at the University of Pennsylvania before venturing to Los Angeles, where she did her internal medicine residency at UCLA. Um, she then did her pulmonary and critical care fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania and is now on the faculty uh, at Duke. Um, and I, I feel very fortunate to have her here today to speak to us about interpersonal and structural racism in critical care medicine. I think this is a, a critically important topic. I think this is a, a nice um, component of our DEI curriculum. Um, uh, Deep, I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom with us. I look forward very much to your discussion. All right, thanks so much for having me and for that nice um, introduction. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, to all of you for being here on your Friday afternoon, sharing um, an hour with me. Um, our next season, by the way, is called The Pollening. That's what the next season in North Carolina is called. So it's really fun for, um, you know, all pulmonary patients. <laughs> it's just blankets of pollen um, fall in the city. Um, yeah, so... Um, as Dr. Olivia mentioned, I am a pulmonary and critical care physician at Duke, and I'm also a health services researcher. Um, my work broadly focuses on understanding how clinicians and health systems contribute to inequitable serious illness care. And um, so today we'll be talking about um, one subset of that, which is um, understanding how interpersonal and structural racism manifest in critical care medicine. And I'll also say that, you know, this will, I'm totally open if people want to um, ask questions as we go, please feel free to interrupt. I mean, not be um, always attentive to the chat. So, um, you know, just unmute, unmute yourself and feel free to interrupt me. It'll be a more fun hour if we can have a discussion rather than just listening to um, a lecture. Um, so, yeah, we've all heard a lot about um, structural racism, particularly recently. This has sort of become um, a buzzword. Um, and so I think one of the objectives of this talk is really to define what interpersonal and structural racism mean. And then also to more broadly think about um, a theory um, of how racism operates in society and how we can apply that to you know, both our clinical practice and for those of you who are researchers to um, your own research or maybe even just in reading the medical research if you don't primarily do your own um, research. And um, so we'll start off by talking about um, critical race theory, which um, is a theory that was, um, you know, originally comes from the legal scholarship and it's been around for um, over 40 years. And I think um, some of you have, may have heard um, the recent news about uh, recent news and controversy about whether or not this should be taught um, in schools in different states. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about what that means and how um, it's relevant to medicine. So, you know, one of the, one of the central tenets of um, critical race theory is that racism is deeply embedded in all structures um, of American society. And to the extent that, you know, it really has become very subtle and ordinary. Um, so it's not um, the... Um, huge inequities that we see in COVID outcomes, for example, that's not always how um, racism operates. It operates in really um, ordinary and subtle ways, and, and that's why it's so insidious and, insidious and difficult to detect and difficult to address. And of course, that doesn't mean that it's acceptable, but um, that's one of the central tenets is that, you know, it's really present in all structures of society. 
It's also necessary um, in a lot of ways to maintain the current status quo. Um, so what that means is, you know, when we think about dismantling racism, there might be instances in which um, certain institutions or individuals actually, um, you know, lose um, if that happens. And so there are certain institutions in American society um, that sort of rely on the status quo, um, which is um, of which racism is a big part um, to maintain um, their power. Um, so that's important to think about as we sort of think forward to how do we um, dismantle racism. Another really important point here is that, you know, because um, critical race theory posits that um, racism is deeply embedded in society, um, that also means that racism is not primarily a feature of individuals. And I think this is an important point for us to consider because, you know, a lot of institutions have created forums like this where people sort of come together to talk about um, DEI research, a lot of places are doing implicit bias trainings and things like that. And I think one of the big barriers that I've seen, at least, is that, you know, sometimes people can feel ashamed when we talk about these um, topics where people can feel maybe this means that I'm a bad person um, if, you know, implicitly or explicitly I have some racist beliefs. And um, I think that, you know, what critical race theory really tells us is that, you know, that's not the message that we should take away from it. It's more that we live in a, in a society and we are products of a society. Therefore, you know, if racism is a feature of our society, we learn from um, the place that we live. And so that is why racism sort of manifests through individuals, but it's not primarily a feature of individuals. So it's not something to be ashamed of. And, um, you know, that um, will necessarily be a barrier to being aware of it and to addressing it. And um, so I think that's also an important point to take away from this. The other um, big point, which um, has been talked about a lot in the medical uh, literature recently, is that, you know, race is a social construct. It's not um, equivalent to genetic ancestry. It's not a biological risk factor for the vast, vast majority of diseases. Um, even though it's been used that way in a lot of the biomedical research. And so um, this is a quote by um, Kamara Jones, which I think sums up this um, idea really well. She says that, you know, the variable race is only a rough proxy for um, socioeconomic status, culture, and genes. And I would say maybe now we can say even a very, very rough proxy, um, but it does precisely capture the social, the social classification of people um, in a race-conscious race society like the United States. And um, so, you know, when you're reading the medical literature, if you're doing your own research and um, interested in disparities research or doing some analyses that are sort of stratified by race, really ask yourself, what is the purpose of using race in that context? You know, so if you're reading a paper um, and you see that race um, is used, um, which this happens commonly, you know, there's even papers in New England Journal of Medicine, even to this day, um, that will sort of find an association between race and the health outcome. And the discussion you'll see um, the authors hypothesize that that might there's um, some genetic predisposition um, in patients who identify as a certain race that might then lead to that health, health outcome. Um, so that is the incorrect way um, to use race um, in research. And there's plenty of um, evidence to um, support that assertion. There's been um, really amazing like population-based um, genomic studies by Sarah Tishcroft at Penn and others that have shown, um, you know, the summary of that work is really that there's more genetic diversity um, within people of um, African ancestry than there is 
um, and the human population at large, right? So when you look at um, people of um, African ancestry, there's so much genetic diversity in that population that sort of classifying um, all of those individuals as black and using that as a biological risk factor really doesn't make um, any scientific sense. Um, the other way that race is often used in um, research is, you know, as a proxy for social um, risk factors for disease. So um, commonly you'll um, see things like race being used as a proxy for poverty um, and things like that or health literacy. Um, and that, again, you know, I would say is not the way that it ought to be used. And um, so um, unfortunately, because of the legacy of racism in this country, there is an association between those things, you know, race and income, for example, in this country, but um, that's a really um, sort of um, imprecise way to measure income and really what we should be striving for is to, you know, precisely measure the variables that we want to include in our research. Otherwise, um, it's scientifically a bad idea because you sort of introduce measurement error if you're using poor proxies for the things that you actually want to measure. But I think the other reason that we really should um, be wary of those of that research practice is because it creates, or not creates, but um, uh, I think amplifies a dangerous um, narrative in our minds. You know, if we see these variables always linked in the research, um, we start to believe that it's true, you know, that race and poverty mean the same thing. Um, and of course, that's not true. And so I think that is really the reason that we should um, be cautious about using race um, as a proxy for these social risk factors, first of all, because of the um, issue of measurement error. But then second is that it creates this really dangerous narrative um, that sort of perpetuates itself then. And so really, you know, the thing that people have settled on is what race really ought to be used for in research is to represent racism, right? So that um, for sure is true that because it's a social classification, um, race does um, is a is a very good proxy for experiences of racism, and that will, that does allow us to understand how racism operates to create differential health outcomes for people in the United States. Um, so that would be one, you know, important takeaway is really if you're reading research studies or doing your own work, really consider how race is relevant to the work. Um, and then the other two big concepts in critical race theory are to um, center the margins and develop critical consciousness. So um, what does that mean? Um, center the margins is really about, you know, if you're interested in understanding the experience um, of a marginalized group, then it's important to center that population um, in your research. And so um, I'll give you some examples of, you know, when that's not done, so then we can understand what we ought to do. And so commonly you'll see um, study designs where people are sort of comparing white and non-white populations. And so, you know, what that creates is when you use white always as a reference group, then it also, again, creates this narrative that white is the norm and it's the standard. Um, and again, the non-white, you know, patients are all lumped together, but I think the reality is that you know, me as an Indian person, um, I'm uh, likely to experience the um, healthcare, healthcare system very differently than a Black patient, for example. Um, so that, um, again, is, um, I think, um, inaccurately, um, you know, grouping patients who have very different experiences into a category that is labeled non-white, which, again, reinforces this um, standard of white as the norm. And so that's one way that the margins are not centered in research, right? You see this um, sort of dichotomization of race very commonly in the research. So, you know, if you take a critical race theory approach to uh, medical research, you know, what um, 
the recommendation would be is that if you're interested in understanding the experience of Black patients in the healthcare system would be to really focus on studying Black patients rather than non-white patients and then consider, you know, is it necessary to have a reference group or do I just deeply want to understand um, the experience of this one patient population? Um, and then other places where this, um, you know, becomes relevant is involving um you know, doing community-based um, participatory research and things like that's really involving the population that you're interested in studying in um, all phases of your study design. Because I think, you know, as researchers, we may have different perspectives about what sorts of evidence might be useful and um, to improve the health of a community than that community might have themselves. So involving um, the patients that you're interested and then studying in all um, sort of components of the research would be another way um, to center the margins. Um, and then developing critical consciousness is, you know, this, um, I sort of describe it as like, if we think about, you know, race as this thread um, that um, is ever present in the fabric of our society. And um, it's this idea that for a lot of people, maybe until recently, it was an invisible thread. You know, people did not recognize um, how ubiquitous um, racism was. And so developing critical consciousness really is about making it visible, you know, seeing um, where racism operates in the healthcare system. Um, and I think, you know, for those of us who don't um, identify as Black, including myself, part of this is also about having self-consciousness. So, um, you know, recognizing um, the unearned privilege um, that you might have. And so for me, for example, that would be, you know, like when I walk into the hospital, I'm expected to be there, right? I'm um, an Indian person who's overrepresented in medicine, so people expect me to be in the hospital. People expect me um, to choose this profession and be successful in it, and like that is a really powerful thing, the expectation of others. Um, so that is an unearned privilege that sort of propels my career forward, and so um, this piece about critical consciousness is also about having that self-consciousness about um, your own lived experience and how um, that privilege operates. Um, this is sort of a graphic representation of this allegory that um, I heard um, Kamara Jones share a couple of years ago when she um, gave a grand rounds when I was in fellowship, and it was just it's this really powerful story, so I'll share it with you, but I'll also encourage you to find a video of her telling um, the story herself online, because I'm sure I won't do um, as good of a job as she does, but um, this is, she tells this story about, it's called The Gardener's Tale, um, and I think it's useful for us to discuss because um, it'll help us to define um, those terms in our personal and structural racism and also think about um, you know, what are the best ways to mitigate racism in the healthcare system? And um, she tells a story where she says, you know, imagine that you're an avid gardener and you just bought a house. And um, when you get to the house after you've purchased it, you see that there are um, these two window boxes. And one of them, they're both, they don't have flowers in them. One of them is totally empty and the other has some soil, but no flowers. And so, um, you know, you go out and you purchase um, pink flower bulbs and red flower bulbs and um, a bag of new soil. And you plant the pink um, flower buds in the window box with the existing soil. And then in the other window box, you put the new soil um, and the red flower bulbs. And then you tend to them over the years. And what happens expectedly is that the red flower bulbs are larger and more vibrant and more robust. Um, because they have the new soil, but, you know, over the years, maybe you sort of forget um, that that difference existed from the beginning, that they had different soil, and you sort of start to prefer 
um, the red flowers. And so you might spend more time tending to them. If you have a little extra fertilizer, you might give it to the red flowers because you've developed a preference for the red flowers. Um, when people come over, you might, you know, show them your beautiful red flowers, that sort of thing. Um, and over time, these are sentient flowers, so they also perceive um, that the gardener is paying different attention to them. And the pink flowers can see that the red flowers are larger, so they also sort of start to internalize these attitudes. You know, the pink flowers might think, maybe there's something wrong with me because I'm trying um, to grow, but the red flowers are always, you know, larger and um, more vibrant than I am. And so these are, I know, this is an allegory for the different levels of racism. So what's happening with the pink flowers is really um, internalized racism. So that's when um, individuals from minoritized groups start to internalize these false stereotypes about them, uh, about themselves. Um, and so in our, you know, context of healthcare, these would be patients. Um, Interpersonal racism is mediated between individuals. This would be, you know, when the gardener spends more time tending to the red flowers or gives additional fertilizer to the red flowers of interpersonal racism. And for this audience, you know, in, in healthcare, um, the gardener can be many people, but um, for our purposes today, it'll be these are clinicians, it's us. Um, and then the structural piece of it is, of course, that the flowers began with very different soil. Um, so the pink flowers began with soil that was old and depleted of nutrients, and the red flowers got fresh soil. Um, so that's structural racism. And, you know, the list of um, structural um, factors that contribute to differences in health outcomes is just endless in medicine. So this could be, um, you know, different differences in um, hospital quality, different access to um, insurance, to health insurance. It's, um, even neighborhood factors like um, access to safe green spaces to exercise, having a grocery store in your community, um, air pollution, having targeted, you know, uh, tar targeted marketing by tobacco companies in your neighborhood, things like that. Um, these are all of the structural factors that lead to um, differences in health outcomes between groups. Um, and this is also a nice story because you can start to think about, you know, what solutions would be most effective here. Um, so if we tell the pink flowers, you're beautiful, and if you just believe it, you'll grow, maybe, you know, that would make them feel better, but it's unlikely to really have any substantial impact um, on how the flowers are growing, right? So that tells us that um, interventions that are sort of directed at the individuals, which oftentimes people will say can sort of have this element of victim shaming, um, you know, they're unlikely to be very effective in isolation for sure. And so if you don't change anything about the gardener's behavior or the soil, it's very unlikely that that intervention will really have substantial um, impacts on mitigating the disparity. What if you intervene on the gardener? What if a gardener changes her behavior and spends more time um, tending to the pink flowers? That will probably have more of an impact on, um, you know, uh, promoting the flower's growth. And um, so that's, um, could be a potential solution. But again, if you don't change the soil, the impact is going to be limited. And so, you know, the takeaway from this is you have to, you have to um, intervene on the structural factors. If you intervene on the structural factors in the absence of anything else, um, the impact on the disparity would be huge. But if you just focus on the other things without um, addressing the structural factors, it's very unlikely that you'll make, um, you know, big changes and, and health outcomes. And so despite knowing this, you know, when we look at the 
and health disparities literature, the vast, vast majority of health disparities literature focuses on patient factors. So this is um, a figure from a um, systematic review about um, racial disparities in advanced care planning. And um, so, you know, conversations of, uh, usually with serious ill patients about um, death and dying. And um, you can sort of see on this right side um, how much of the literature has focused on patient factors and so a uh, few studies on system factors um, to the extent that, you know, most of these healthcare system factors are in this box that is conceptually derived, right? So they're not even empirically measured factors, it's just hypothesized factors. Um, so a lot more of the health disparities that literature focuses on patient factors, even though from um, the story that we were just um, discussing on the prior slide, um, we should expect that these interventions will have a limited impact on mitigating disparities. And, um, you know, maybe there's also the um, sort of um, moral or ethical point that you're sort of placing the onus um, for eliminating the disparity on the people who are experiencing the disparity. Um, the other point I'll make about this is that, um, you know, is, is one about um, science. Um, and I think for all of us, you know, we sort of see um, research and science and evidence as sort of, you know, like the source of truth and we expect it to be um, unbiased. And um, I would say we also need to be a little skeptical about that. Um, so there's been a lot of attention paid recently to the language um, that we use in health disparities research and how biased that is. So, um, you know, one example of that would be, why is health literacy considered a patient factor? Um, you know, so the path here might be something like um, black patients are less likely to utilize hospice. And, you know, we think that lower health literacy maybe leads to less knowledge about hospice and therefore less utilization. Um, so maybe that's the story there. But really, is that a patient factor? You know, are we saying that because the patient is less health literate, that's what's leading to the, uh, to the um, undesired outcome? Or is it that the communication about hospice is not appropriately tailored to the patient? You know, maybe we're communicating in a way that isn't effective. Maybe um, our written communication about hospice or oral communication about hospice is not, um, you know, is done in a way that's not really effective. So I would say that health literacy is not really a patient factor. Really what we're talking about here is the modifiable mechanism is ineffective communication. You know, so even that in and of itself, I think, sort of, um, you know, betrays that the language that we use um, in health disparities research oftentimes can be biased. It's just um, think critically about all of these things, you know, develop that critical consciousness that leads you to be a bit skeptical about these things. Um, so <clears throat> we'll, talk, we'll switch to talking a little bit about um, the things that I've been thinking about and working on recently. Um, and these will be some concrete examples of ways that interpersonal and structural racism manifests in critical care. So um, two of the big um, sort of areas that I've been working on have been um, on how ICU clinicians engage um, patients and families in communication and shared decision making. And then the second um, is how health systems allocate um, scarce uh, critical care resources during health crises. Um, so the first one, disparities in communication and shared decision making, this is, you know, something for which there is a tremendous amount of evidence. And we know, um, you know, there have been a ton of studies that have consistently demonstrated that clinicians 
um, communicate with patients of different races differently. Um, and it's not new evidence. So the Institute of Medicine, or what was then called the Institute of Medicine, um, you know, published a seminal um, report called Unequal Treatment over 20 years ago now. And there was an entire chapter devoted to patient-provider communication um, that was written by um, Lisa Cooper and Deborah Roeder, who were, I think, just down the street from you guys. Um, who, you know, have really done a lot of the foundational work in this space and have created a lot of the um, the measures that we still use to this day. So a lot of this has been known for a long time, yet there really have not been, you know, many um, effective interventions to address the disparity. Um, and a lot of this literature is in the outpatient setting. There's a lot less in the ICU setting. So there's a few studies from um, the groups at Pittsburgh and um, University of Washington and some of the New York hospitals that have looked at um, racial disparities in ICU communication, but not a ton that's been done here. And I think it's really, you know, an underexplored area of research because if you sort of think about um, interpersonal communication and when our racial biases are most likely to be activated, I think the ICU is like the prototype, you know, because we, um, so like Daniel, if you're familiar with um, Daniel Kahneman's work and this, you know, type one and type two thinking, he sort of describes that um, when we are in this type two thinking, which is these fast automatic um, thinking, like time pressured thinking, like we often do in the ICU, that is when to deal with the time pressure and the cognitive complexity, our brain sort of reverts to using these mental shortcuts, you know, heuristics to make the um, decision making a bit easier. And so some of these heuristics are very likely to be these racial biases. So, you know, a heuristic that might be relevant in the ICU would be Black patients prefer more aggressive care, right? So if you're having a family meeting um, with a Black family, maybe you approach that meeting differently if um, time is limited, for example. And um, so I think because of that, you know, unique context of the ICU, the fact that um, we're making decisions with people that we don't know very well most of the time, the decisions need to be made under time pressure, and they're really cognitively complex decisions that have tremendous implications for the patients, since many of them um, have such a high risk of dying. I think this is, you know, the archetype of where um, racial stereotypes and heuristics are likely to be activated. So I think it's really um, an area that is underexplored in the communication literature. Um, so some of the work that I have done um, in this space, and this was one study, um, it was a qualitative study that we completed a few years ago now, um, where we um, interviewed 74 clinicians um, from inpatient and outpatient settings, including some ICU clinicians um, from six health systems across the country about um, advanced care planning. And we specifically asked them, you know, which patients are challenging to engage in advanced care planning and why. Um, and clinicians identified um, racial and ethnic minority patients, um, non-English speaking patients, and patients from um, certain religious traditions as difficult to um, engage in advanced care planning. And these were some of the themes that came up as um, barriers to ACP um, with those patients. So um, avoiding ACP, having, having a narrow view of successful ACP and lacking institutional support. So um, I'll just read um, some of the quotes to you and sort of share, you know, what I thought was um, interesting about these. So one of the clinicians said, you know, we see people from um, many countries. We don't know um, their practices. We might offend someone by asking, 
um, about their preferences, um, specifically regarding death and dying. And, you know, I think this is important because um, I want this to be really clear, you know, even though I focus on clinicians, like I, I am a clinician, I strongly believe that, you know, all of us want to do um, the best for our patients. So none of this is meant to, you know, going back to the initial point about like, none of this is meant to shame people. It's just recognizing that we are products of the society um, that we have. And so we need to be aware of, you know, like what, um, uh, like what attitudes of society we sort of absorb and might become evident in our interactions with patients from different backgrounds. And so I think this is an important quote because, you know, it's not about, I don't want to do ACP and with people from other countries. It's that I might offend someone by asking really. So this is always rooted, you know, in concern for the patient and concern for the relationship with the patient. It's never um, a bad clinician. It's just, clinicians who feel uncomfortable and don't know um, how to sort of bridge that cultural divide. Um, another clinician said, you know, if I have an African-American woman, I might not be as deep into that conversation as with another normal patient. And I highlighted normal not because um, the clinician um, sort of emphasized that word when we spoke to them, but I think it's just a really um, unfortunate but powerful example of this biased language that I was talking about, right? Because what's the implication when we say normal? I guess the opposite of that must be abnormal. Um, so we're sort of creating this dichotomy where, you know, the African-American woman is the other, right? And so we talked about this concept of centering um, the margins. And so if we really want to do a better job of ACP with these patients, then we need to center them rather than classifying them um, as other or abnormal. Um, another clinician said, it is uncomfortable to be accused. Um, you think you can undo God's will. If you get that enough, you might avoid that conversation again. Um, and I think this really gets to the heart of the matter. You know, why um, are we sort of creating differential opportunities for people to engage in, in ACP? It's because of this discomfort, right, the personal discomfort. Um, so that's why I highlighted that there. Um, and you know, sort of unrelated to their research, but I would say in my own clinical practice, and maybe this will resonate to you, is, um, you know, what I have been trying, and this is all a learning process, right? Like, I make a lot of mistakes when it comes to these things all the time, and I'm still learning too, but one of the things that um, I have sort of learned over time is to really, like, attend to that discomfort, you know, when I sense that discomfort in myself, is to pause and say, why do I feel uncomfortable, and, you know, would it be fair for me to um, avoid this conversation because of my personal discomfort? Is there a way for me to um, sort of overcome that and still engage this patient? So I think that's important to do. Um, <clears throat> and then there's this concept of, you know, like having a narrow view of successful ACP. So um, one clinician said the decision to be DNR is counter to their family's expectations. So they choose to be full CPR and let it be bewildering to me. Another says, they say it's just God's will, Doc. Now I've got documentation in the chart that doesn't help anybody. Um, so I think in both of these, you know, the um, sort of implicit message is that we believe personal autonomy should really matter, right? So if the patient believes they should be DNR, that's what they should be. It should not matter what the family wants or, um, you know, it's not up to the patient. It's not up to God to decide. The patient needs to tell us what to do, whether we should intubate them or not when they um, develop respiratory failure. So um, I think, you know, that is the idea here that, you know, our view of ACP is pretty narrow. It really um, 
prioritizes personal autonomy over different family structures or religious traditions and things like that, and that might uh, preferentially disadvantage some patients and not others. Um, and this last theme is really highlighting, you know, some structural barriers to um, ACP. So some people talked about um, it's really hard to engage um, patients who don't speak English with iPad translators because um, you can't read the body language of the room or um, a, lot, a lot of times advanced care planning documents are only available in Spanish and, or not available in um, non-English languages like Spanish. Um, others talked about, um, you know, faith and spirituality are really important to people when making these decisions, but we just can't call a chaplain um, in the outpatient setting. They're only in the hospital. There's also a lot of structural barriers to um, equitably engaging patients in ACP. And, you know, not everything is, um, we can't advance anymore, is doom and gloom. There were also lots of hopeful messages in this work, too. Um, so there were also a lot of clinicians that sort of, um, you know, demonstrated um, what might be the interventions in the future, right? Like, what are the important features for equitably engaging patients? So some uh, clinicians um, sort of exemplified rejecting stereotypes and really individualizing um, their approach to ACP. And um, so one said there's broad strokes of religious traditions, but it ultimately comes down to this family and this person because there's diversity and how they might apply it. And um, another sort of spoke to this idea of the personal discomfort being a barrier. So she said, um, so the theme here was believing that proficiency in ACP with all patients is a professional obligation. And um, so she said, I don't believe that fear or not having a skill set is an answer. As doctors, we learn to do really difficult things. And if I don't prioritize it, I won't learn it. So this is just a learned skill like any other, um, you know, talking to patients with different backgrounds. And then the third was about not assigning value to ACP outcomes. So one said, do you speak for you and with you? If your son speaks to you, I have to respect that as well, right? So maybe um, the personal autonomy is not as important. It's about respecting um, however people want to make decisions. Um, and then the uh, last quote, I think, is really um, something to chew on for an ICU audience, that some people show love and care through medical interventions. Um, so um, I had a an attending when I was in fellowship who always used to tell me to invest in the process, not the outcome. Um, and that has always stuck with me. And I think, you know, that's one of the messages I think from this paper is that, you know, if you invest in the process of engaging with people and not in the outcome of, you know, making people DNR and things like that, then you will succeed all of the time. <laughs> um, okay. And then there's some um, ongoing work that we have that um, is specifically focused um, on the ICU. So, this is um, just some preliminary data from analysis that's not done yet. This, um, we have access to a database of about um, 100 audio recorded family meetings between um, ICU attending physicians and um, um, families in the ICU. Um, and this was in the context of a clinical trial about um, a decision aid for patients with uh, prolonged mechanical ventilation. So a lot of these meetings are about um, whether the patient wants to pursue a tracheostomy or not. And what we did is a little bit different from the last study. The last study was a more traditional sort of um, inductive approach to 
qualitative analysis where you sort of, you know, see what themes arise from the data. And um, this is the opposite of the deductive approach. So we took a very well-established framework for shared decision-making that was developed at Pittsburgh. So it's literally a checklist of things that you should be doing when you're having a shared decision-making conversation um, with a patient or family. And we just scored the conversation, you know, so things like states the purpose of the conversation, discusses prognosis. We just uh, listened to the conversations and checked um, yes or no, the clinician did this. And then we did a stratified analysis by race. And there's not, you know, these um, different clinician behaviors are not grouped in the framework, but we created um, a grouping ourselves. Um, and it's based on um, this conceptualization of shared of um, human decision-making is having cognitive, cognitive and affective components. So what that means is that, you know, human beings don't just make decisions based on information. Emotion is also hugely important. So like rationally, we can know um, what the correct, um, you know, weighing of risk and benefit is for a specific decision. But if it's a really hard decision to make, we still might not make the most rational decision. And that happens, I think, all the time in the ICU. So um, it's recognizing that there's cognitive and affective or emotional pieces um, to decision-making. So using that, we sort of classify these behaviors into um, cognitive um, components to sharing medical information and then eliciting information about uh, from uh, families about patients' preferences and then providing social and emotional support. And, um, you know, the big takeaways from this is what you see is that clinicians pretty consistently with most, um, almost all families do a good job of sharing uh, medical information, which makes sense. You know, that is the um, bread and butter of what we do in the ACU. We weigh um, really complex medical information all the time and talk to families about it. So we do a really good job of that. And we do it equally well um, with black and white families. And then where you uh, start to see um, things break down a little bit more is um, you know, we elicit patient or preferences a little bit less frequently, and then we share medical information, and then we definitely um, provide social and more emotional support very infrequently. And this is where the disparities start to become um, evident. And um, so we are less likely to elicit preferences from um, Black and white family members and less likely to provide emotional support to Black and white family members. Um, and I think, you know, again, this sort of makes sense if we keep going with this like theme of the personal discomfort being um, important um, when we're setting disparities. I think, you know, most ICU clinicians would say, say that they feel very comfortable um, um, synthesizing medical information and sharing it. And so I think that's why that's happening at high rates and it's happening equally well in black and white patients. But then when it comes to, um, you know, sort of eliciting information about patients' values and goals, maybe that's a little bit further outside the core skill set. And then definitely you know, not being so far from my fellowship training, I can say, like, that's the thing that we get least well trained in, right, is how to um, emotionally support families. And so I think that's why you sort of see this declining prevalence. And um, as the skills become uh, maybe less and less well established, I think that's where you really see the disparities um, start to arise. And again, this is, you know, it's a pretty small sample, so we can't really do um, any hypothesis testing with this. So um, it's really meant to be um, a hypothesis generating sort of analysis, and we have more data coming, so we'll see if this um, holds in the larger sample. Um, and then we did sort of a deeper dive into the emotional um, support piece of this um, with a more um, inductive approach um, with thematic analysis and and, you know, some of the key takeaways here was that we also found that when we dive deeper into how clinicians are providing emotional support, 
um, it appears that there's different types of responses to families' emotions with black and white families. So um, this quote here is to a white family member. So, you know, if this was my wife, I would be frustrated. Um, you want things to get better much faster. Um, but when we have multiple organs that we're trying to juggle to fix, it takes some time. Thank you for sharing your frustration with us. You've been strong. And let us uh, let us help alleviate some of that stress and anxiety. So this is, you know, a really personal response. It's about if this was my wife, thank you for sharing um, your frustration with us. So it really validates um, the family's emotions. And um, there's a lot of alliance that's demonstrated here. The clinician is saying, let us help um, take away some of that stress and anxiety, things like that. Um, and then these are some quotes that are in response to um, black families' expressions of negative emotions. So, like, you know, much shorter, much less personalized. Um, so that was one um, sort of interesting finding. And then the other thing was that there were a few instances where there were just, you know, missed opportunities entirely for emotional supports. The family member is repeatedly saying that the situation is difficult. They're feeling troubled um, by the medical situation. And it seems, you know, I, I doubt that this is um, the clinician willfully not responding to the emotion. It's probably just that they're not even um, attuned to the fact that the um, family member is trying to communicate some emotion here. And in the medical literature, this has not really been studied, but there have been, um, you know, multiple studies in sociology that have described this phenomenon um, called the racial empathy gap, um, where, um, you know, this has been well described that, um, you know, as human beings, we sort of mirror each other's emotions. So I'm sure you all experiences, you know, if you're um, seeing a patient who is depressed, you can sort of feel that um, inherently. And um, so we mirror um, emotions, but, you know, in a society that um, really in many ways dehumanizes Black individuals, um, they're, um, you know, that, that empathy and the mirroring of emotions sort of breaks down. And so that has been demonstrated and really um, fascinating studies using F fMRI and things like that, where people um, will sort of be exposed to emotions from um, individuals of different races, and they just don't feel um, the emotion or detect the emotion as strongly when it's um, a Black individual versus a white individual. So I think um, that is probably the mechanism um, for what is happening here also. Um, I will skip the next two slides just um, out of the interest of time. Um, but we also have some um, other ongoing work about um, trauma-informed care that I'll be happy to talk about um, offline if um, anybody's interested. Um, but I wanted to, you know, so those were some, some examples of how um, interpersonal racism manifests um, in critical um, care. So this is really about um, how we differentially engage um, families in shared decision-making and this idea of the racial empathy gap. And then um, switching gears a little bit to how structural racism might manifest in, in critical care. Again, there's been a lot of work um, done on this. So there's a lot of um, evidence that there's really inequitable access to high-quality hospital care, um, both um, for racial minority groups and then um, increasing evidence for, um, especially during the pandemic, for critical access hospitals and um, patients who are living in rural areas, things like that. Um, so thinking about transfer networks and um, all of that during the pandemic has been a really um, 
hot topic of research and I think a really good example of um, structural barriers to equitable critical care. And then um, I think uh, some of your own faculty have also written about institutional policies um, that might create inequitable um, family access to patients. So, you know, how do visiting hours um, act as barriers to people who need to work during the day and cannot get paid time off from work, for example? How are they, you know, are they equally able to visit their family members as others and um, things like that? Um, and then also the use of um, security you know, in ICUs. So there's a lot of conflict in ICUs and things escalate and it's been um, well documented that we're more likely to call security um, and sort of, you know, maybe even bring an element of what we see in society, the criminalization and the militarization sort of creeps into the hospital too. So these are just some examples of um, structural barriers to both um, patient and family-centered ICU care. Um, and then one study that we completed last year was a little bit um, different, um, focused on another structural barrier. So this is, you know, maybe <laughs> the most innocuous thing you think it's a prediction model, right? We're looking at a prediction model. We looked at SOFA, um, the SOFA score, and we, um, our goal with this study was really just to see if SOFA score predicted mortality equally well with black and white patients. and when we were starting this, I was like, you know, I really don't know if there's going to be anything there. I mean, like, it's a score made up of, like, platelets and bilirubin and um, PF ratio. How could that possibly be biased? Like, these are really objective numbers, right? Like, conceptually, this doesn't make any sense. But be surprised. You, you know, I should stop being surprised when we look for um, evidence of disparities. They will be um, there no matter where you look. Um, so I guess just to back up a little bit, you know, the reason that we were interested, we became interested in this topic is um, it was the beginning of the pandemic and there was a lot of discussion about when we run out of ventilators, you know, which never happened. We ended up running out of ACU nurses. But anyway, the question was when we run out of ventilators and ACU beds, how do we decide who's going to get that last ventilator or ACU bed? How do we do that fairly? And so um, all states and hospitals and health systems sort of um, enacted these crisis standards of care that um, guided fair allocation of scarce critical care resources. And all of them were based on um, the ethical principle of we should try to save um, the most lives or life years possible. And um, so we should give resources to the patients who are most likely to survive. And the way that we adjudicate that is to use an objective score like the SOFA score. The SOFA score will tell us who is most likely to survive, and then we can rank patients, and that's how we decide um, who gets that last ventilator. Um, but, you know, the surface score was developed in Europe, and so our question was, does it, um, is it going to work well um, in an American population, and specifically um, since the pandemic was and still is um, disproportionately affecting racial and ethnic minority communities, will it predict mortality equally well in black and white patients? Um, so, the population included um, over 110,000 um, black and white patients who were treated for sepsis and acute respiratory failure in 27 um, different hospitals at the um, Kaiser and University of Pennsylvania Health Systems over a five-year um, period. And we looked at the original SOFA score and then several modifications. This was around the same time that there was um, a lot of research about um, creatinine and renal function measurement and how that was racially biased. So creatinine is a component of SOFA. So we created several modifications, including one that excluded creatinine. 
and we looked at the predictive um, accuracy of the score. So we looked at discrimination and calibration, um, which for those of you that are not familiar with those metrics, you know, discrimination basically tells us how well the model distinguishes um, patients with and without um, the outcome of interest. So basically, um, can the model, you know, if we have two buckets, people who are likely to die and people who are not likely to die, does the model put critically ill patients in the right bucket? And then calibration is um, the agreement between observed and predicted risk of mortality. So not only does it put them in the right bucket, but how um, closely does it approximate their true risk of dying? And, you know, for the context of a crisis standard of care, the calibration is probably more important because you're ranking patients. So you don't just want to know who's going to die and who's going to survive. But even among those who are going to survive, you want to know who's most likely to survive and who's less likely to survive. So you need to rank people. So the calibration um, becomes really important in that, um, in that context. And, you know, right away, as soon as we started looking at the data, it was evident that there would be um, an issue here. So um, this graph is just um, some descriptive um, data about when you sort of look at each SOFA score, what is the actual observed in hospital mortality for black and white patients um, for an equal SOFA score? So for you know every single um, SOFA score, the reason that we lumped eight and above um, together is just because there were few patients in that category. Um, but for every single SOFA score, you can see that black patients um, have lower in hospital mortality than white patients with the same exact score. So this is problematic. You know, we're inputting these really objective variables. This is meant to be sort of an unbiased severity of illness score. And um, despite that, patients are not dying um, at equal rates, which they should be. Um, so then it was no surprise then when we looked at the calibration of the model, um, there was this very systematic pattern um, of miscalibration. So these um, plots are calibration plots. And basically what you see here on the and y-axis is observed mortality, and then on the x-axis is expected mortality, so the mortality that was predicted by the model. And if the model is perfect, all of your data should line up on this um, red diagonal line. The observed and expected mortality should be exactly the same. Um, and you can see that, you know, for both white and black patients, there's some deviation from the line. It's a little bit larger um, for the black patients, and this is quantified um, in these numbers below. And so, and also the deviation is in opposite directions. And so what's happening for black patients is that the, I'm sorry, for white patients is that the observed mortality is actually higher um, than the expected mortality. Um, so what that means is that the model is underestimating their risk of dying. And then the opposite is happening for black patients. Their observed mortality is lower than their expected mortality. So the model is overestimating um, their risk of dying. So overestimating the risk of dying, in other words, you know, it's making them look more sick than they actually are. And so in the context of the CFC, remember, we want to give the resource to the least sick patient. And so if black patients are systemically appearing sicker than they actually are, more likely to die than they actually are, then they would just be systematically um, excluded from receiving these scarce critical care resources. So we did this very um, rudimentary sort of calculation where we said that, you know, um, what if we were to equalize um, the mortality to basically fix the model? Like how many black patients would have been affected by this miscalibration? Um, so uh, 
in the um, in the triage policy that was most widely used in the country at that time, the highest priority category was SOFA zero to five, so those with the lowest risk of mortality. And basically what we did was we said, you know, currently um, black patients who are in this category have an average risk of dying of 5.3%, um, and white patients have an average um, mortality of 6.9%. So if we reclassify um, black patients with a SOFA of six, seven, or eight, and we add them, um, to this highest priority CSC category, like when do we get to the point where the mortality is relatively equal between the group, uh, two groups? And it turns out that you could liberalize um, the SOFA cutoff for Black patients all the way to an SOFA of eight um, before you equalize the mortality among the two um, races. And so what that means is that, you know, this um, so 10% of all Black patients would have been inappropriately excluded um, from that highest priority CSC category. But maybe even more concerningly, 82% of Black patients who were not originally in that highest priority CSC category would have been inappropriately excluded um, from, um, from that category. So really, you know, potentially a tremendous um, impact on resource allocation. So Sorry for talking for so long, but I will just quickly summarize in case there are questions. Um, you know, this uh, concept, what I said before, is that maybe one day I will stop being surprised when we find um, really stark racial disparities in pretty much every um, health outcome that we look at because, um, you know, what we talked about on the first slide, which is that racism is just part and parcel of our society. It is present in every single aspect of our society. So really, it should be no surprise that where we look, there will be a racial disparity, even in really obje objective prediction scores, like the SOFA score, even in medical devices like pulse oximeters, and even in, you know, really high quality of rigorous research when we use words like health literacy, but what we actually mean is an effective communication. And so maybe the, you know, the hopeful message for that is no matter what you do, you can incorporate equity into it. You know, so if you're a clinician, um, think about it with all of your patient encounters. If you're a researcher, if you're doing lung transplant research or genomics research, it's relevant to, um, you know, pretty much everything that you do. And then, um, you know, some of the takeaways for how to approach it, I think it's really important to um, build diverse teams um, because I think our collective critical consciousness is better um, than our individual, and really remember that message about centering the margins. You know, so much of research, um, the disparities angle is like an afterthought, and that's not the way it should be. We should be um, purposeful um, about this type of work. Um, and also, we should strive really to understand mechanisms and develop solutions because we're really still stuck in the phase of describing. Um, so we describe disparities a lot, but we don't understand why they arise or how to fix them, um, and that's really needed. And then I will just end with this <clears throat> quote, which always um, motivates me, even though I come from, you know, a background of a lot of quantitative research, is that um, statistics and graphs are not optimal. And then the addition is my addition. Um, maybe they're not sufficient to really understand um, the experience of suffering. So I think it's important for us to you know, use large data and epidemiological research, but at the end of the day, we also really need to, I think, use mixed methods and be talking um, to patients and families and clinicians to understand um, how to fix these really complex problems. And that's it.